while you're getting settled, I need to take just a couple minutes to share two quick updates about the life of our church. The first update is a financial praise update. Eight years ago this month, we moved into this building. And if you were with us at that time, you know that in the process of having the opportunity to buy this building, it was kind of a big deal for our church because at that time, through the generosity of our congregation and through the stewardship of our leadership team, we were debt-free. But in order to get into this building, we incurred a mortgage with a 10-year a ten-year mortgage with a balloon. And so that was kind of a big thing for our church leadership at that time. And what we did in year one of our time here is we set ourselves a goal on the leadership team that we would try to set aside monies each year to be ready to pay off that mortgage in 10 years. And what I'm here to tell you is that two years early, two weeks ago, through the providence of God, the generosity of a church, and the wise stewardship of our leadership team, we sent the entire mortgage payment off. And so we are debt free. Yeah. It's a huge praise. What does it mean? Here's what it means. Immediately, starting tomorrow, we begin demolition of this building. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. People say, why are you sharing this? Uh, do we not, not need to be as generous? It's actually precisely the opposite. So this morning, I am unashamedly putting out the call to our church to become even more generous than you've ever been before. Because in this time of revival, our leadership team is looking out now to our city, to our community, to our world, to accomplish great things in representing Jesus Christ, his justice, his heart, to take the whole gospel to the whole world. And we cannot do that without your generosity. So please continue giving. Amen. Amen. And you'll notice I did this announcement after the offering. So we don't manipulate you. Isn't that great? Okay. Here's the second thing you need to know. Next Sunday, when you come back here, you're gonna have an opportunity to fill out a prayer card to share with our leadership how we can be praying for you. This is a part of the rhythm of our church where each fall, our leadership team, pastors and elders go away and we pray for every member of our flock by name. And so you'll have an opportunity at our worship service next Sunday to fill out a prayer card and share with us what we can be praying for in your life. These extraordinary prayers that you've been praying for your neighbors, for your workplace, for our church, we want you to share those with us so that we can pray for you so that God continue to bless our church. Isn't it good, River West, to be a part of what's happening here? I'm very proud to be a part of it. God is good. Let's give him a round of applause again. He's good. And we're going to do again today what we do every Sunday morning. We're going to focus on Jesus. We're going to get in the word, pull out your Bible, open to the gospel of Luke chapter one. The gospel writer Luke had a conviction that I fear that many Christians do not share today. He believed something with all of his heart. Luke believed that Jesus Christ is so perfect, so profound, so compelling and beautiful that if he could simply expose people to the story of Jesus' life, they would be changed. You remember last Sunday, if you were with us when we launched the series, and if you weren't, the sermon is online. You need to go back and listen to it. 
We talked about the fact that Luke, who was this physician, he was a, he was a man of science. He was he was he was a detailed person, a note taker. He did all of this work. He gathered sources. He went back to eyewitnesses, and he put together what he called an orderly account for his personal friend, whom he called most excellent Theophilus. Right, right there in verse four in your Bible, and he wrote this account so that Theophilus would have certainty about the things that he had heard about Jesus. That word certainty is a spiritual word. It describes something that happens spiritually in the heart of a person. And Luke believed, if I can just expose people to the story of Christ, his death, his resurrection, his teaching, his miracles, spiritual things will happen in human hearts. River West, I'm standing before you to tell you that God is taking our church on a journey through the gospel of Luke and we share that conviction that if we give this, the gospel story a fair shake and if we invite friends and neighbors and people we know and love to join us, that God will do mighty things in their hearts and in their lives. They'll be changed spiritually. Amen? Amen? And so this morning we'll immerse ourselves in the story, starting in verse 5. Great storytellers never waste a beginning, and Luke is a great storyteller. Every character, every detail is there for a purpose. Now, if you look at your Bible, that heading that says the birth of John the Baptist foretold, I wish that was not there. That's not in the Greek. And unfortunately, it's not even really the best summary of what's happening in this story. There's actually a lot going on here. I'm going to tell you the three ingredients of this story that you need to know in order to understand Luke's opening. You don't have to write these down. Just think about them as we read. The first ingredient is this. It's the gracious intervention of God in our world. Every time God intervenes, every time God breaks into what's happening in the world, it is an act of grace. That's ingredient number one. Ingredient number two is the critical role of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Christ. And ingredient three is the struggle of faith for real people living in a really messed up world. You take all those ingredients and you weave them together, and you've got a great story. Will you look at it with me? Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years, which is just a polite way of saying they were old. Okay. <laughs> so if you want to politely suggest that to someone today, just say, you're, you're advanced in years, and it's just whatever. Yeah. Luke's account is primarily about Jesus, and so what's interesting is that he doesn't begin with Jesus. In fact, the name Jesus is not mentioned until verse 30. Luke is a master storyteller, and he knows my audience is not ready yet to understand the significance of the birth of Christ. Remember, Luke said, I went back to the beginning because I wanted to tell a story that was 
orderly and significant. So Luke begins with this couple. They seem to be anonymous. They, they seem to be insignificant. Why does he begin with them? Zachariah and Elizabeth, you see them described there. They were both strongly identified with the religion of Israel. Zechariah was a priest, and his wife was also from the tribe of Aaron, which means she came from a priestly line. So this couple signifies how important religious and religious practice was for the people of Israel. But the reader, especially Luke's reader, knows that something's wrong with the religion of Israel at this time. Luke's readers would have known that at this moment in the history of Israel, God had been silent for 400 years. He had stopped speaking and revealing himself to his people. Luke's story begins in the temple. In a moment, we'll see Zechariah in the temple. And what's crazy about that is in the place that had historically been the place where a representative of the nation would hear from God and be in God's presence, that place had suddenly become, because of the stubborn hearts of God's people, it had become a place where God had gone strangely silent. The last time God had spoken to his people was in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. You know, it's really interesting. Do this later. If you take your Bible and you take the one page between Malachi and Matthew, that page represents 400 years of silence. Amazing. As moderns, we look back on that and 400 years, we miss the significance of it. 400 years ago, in right now, Galileo discovered that the earth rotates around the sun. 400 years. 400 years ago, the Taj Mahal was built. 400 years ago, the Dutch purchased Manhattan for $24. 400 years. 400 years is a long time for a community of faith to not hear anything from God. What will God do? In his grace, he's going to break the silence. Now, there's something else that's going wrong in this story. You see it there. Zachariah and his wife are barren. Did you see that word? They're barren. And Luke goes out of his way to tell us these people were righteous. They were obeying God's commandments. Why does he do this? Because he doesn't want the reader to make the mistake of thinking that perhaps they were being punished for something that they were doing. Their barrenness is not a result of God punishing them. It's a symptom of a bigger problem. Living in a broken world where things do not work the way God intended them to work. It can be painful. It can be confusing for a person who's seeking after God, following God, but for some reason, things in your life are not going the way you had hoped they would go. That can cause confusion and pain. You're following God and you're trying to seek after God, but things just keep blowing up in your face or you keep experiencing letdown. And oftentimes, even as a person who's trying to follow God, you'll look across the street or across the desk at a person who's vehemently rejecting God and everything's going hunky-dory in their life, right? And that can cause confusion. 
So there's things that are going wrong at this point in the life of the people of Israel. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, their barrenness is, is it's a symbol for something deeper. It's not just about this personal couple. Luke is trying to tell us something about the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. There was a barrenness in their, in their country, in their, in their spiritual identity. They were not bearing fruit. So barrenness becomes this metaphor for something's wrong. The reader reads this and they, and they read the description of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And if they've read their Bible much, it immediately causes them to recognize this sounds a lot like other stories in the Bible of couples who were advanced in years who are without child and they're experiencing the heartache. Abraham and Sarah. Lee and Rachel, the parents of Samson, etc. And so what happens is you read this, immediately the reader, their expectations begin to build and they think, wait a minute, this sounds like the moment when God's gonna break in in mercy and do something amazing. And so your expectations are raised. What could possibly cure spiritual barrenness? Only God can cure it. What's gonna happen next? We look at it with me, verse eight. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Let me just stop for a minute and tell you historically what's happening here. The people of Israel organized their priests into 24 divisions, and each division would take a week-long turn in Jerusalem serving in the temple. So each division would serve two one-week stints each year and then they would draw lots to see which priest had the privilege of being the one to enter into the holy chamber to burn incense which was a symbol of prayers the incense rose it was a symbol of the people praying and then that priest would bow down and offer prayers Zechariah draws the longest straw or whatever however they did it and he has this rare privilege this high point in his career Imagine the most significant high point in your personal career. This is what this would have been for Zechariah. And it just so happens that in God's sovereign grace, this is the moment when God breaks the silence and speaks to Zechariah. Amazing. What will he say? Verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled. That sounds like a real understatement to me, but anyway. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This angel says to Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. And the reader saying, what prayer would that be? 
Because when a priest was in the temple, it would have been totally inappropriate to pray only for personal things. This was the moment when the priest was crying out to God for revival. God, revive our land. Show us your glory. A prayer that the people of Israel would be spiritually renewed. Now, would Zechariah have also prayed for a child? Probably. And what does God do in that moment? God in his mercy answers two prayers with one gift. The prayer for a son and the prayer for revival. God begins to answer through this child, John, who will be amazing. God in his mercy takes personal and corporate prayers. And in a way that only God can do, those prayers begin to interweave and God answers them through the birth of this child who will go before the Christ. And in the process, in God's mercy, he invites real people to join him, to enter in in his plan of redemption in a way that only God can do. It's amazing. Real characters, John and Elizabeth and Zachariah, and we'll see others. God, every time God does something new, people are invited in to be a part of his redemptive plan. And this particular child will be unbelievably special. How does Luke describe him? Look at verse 15. He tells us some important things. He says, this child will be great. He doesn't mean that John will be affluent or powerful or beautiful. John was none of those things. Unless you think eating locusts makes you great. (laughs) River West, in the economy of God, can I tell you something? Greatness has nothing to do with worldly values. Greatness is about humbly fulfilling the task that God has put in your life. That's greatness. Amen? That's greatness. He'll be great He'll be totally set apart for God's work. Verse 15, that's why John will not drink. It was common for people, even righteous people, to drink wine. But if someone was abstaining from alcohol, that signified this person is set apart in a unique way for God's purposes. John tells us, verse 16, or over the end of verse 15, that he'll be filled with the Spirit even from the womb. This child will be uniquely set apart to speak prophetically and draw attention to Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does when you're filled with the Spirit. He keeps directing attention to Christ. And that theme of being filled with the Spirit is going to continue as we read John's gospel. Mary will be filled with the Holy Spirit to conceive Christ. Elizabeth will be filled with the Holy Spirit and she'll sing out a prophetic prayer. So will Zechariah. And this John For the first time in redemptive history, this John is filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Amazing. He'll turn hearts, verse 16, to make people ready, to make people prepared. See, Luke says, God's going to do revival in our community, but we're not ready. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) God says, we have to get ready. And so God sends John, the forerunner, to turn hearts. That's an Old Testament metaphor for repentance. When you turn around and you repent, that was John's message. And then finally, verse 17, Luke says, he'll go before the Messiah. He'll lead the way. He'll make straight paths 
A voice in the wilderness, Isaiah 40, one calling out, prepare, make straight paths for, the, for Jesus Christ, God's son. Amazing, this kid was so special. But the point of the story is that in God's grace, he breaks in, he breaks the silence, and he invites real people, humble, simple people like you and me. And he says, I'm going to include you. You get to be a part of this story. How will Zechariah respond to this news? Well, maybe not the way you would expect. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like it turned negative a little bit. <laughs> it got a little dark, right? What's going on here? Remember last week when I told you that one of the traits of Luke is that he always goes for the human heart. This is Luke. Luke's target is constantly the human heart. So every character that responds some way to the plan of God or the person of Christ, however they respond, Luke gives us an open window in to see what was the condition of their heart that caused that response. Every commentator says that Zachariah and Mary, which shows up in the very next story, are really closely aligned. There's like this super strong comparison between the two of these. Have you ever noticed this? Will you look at your Bible? Look at Luke 1, verse 18. Both Zechariah and Mary have an angel come. It's Gabriel, and he essentially announces the same thing. Something miraculous is going to happen, but they respond a little bit differently. Will you look at it? And what's the purpose? To show us something about the condition of the human heart. In verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. Now look one page over at chapter 1, verse 34. The same basic announcement to Mary in verse 34. And it sounds like Mary responds similarly. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Mary's like, Zechariah, you're old, but I'm a virgin. And that seems like kind of a bigger miracle, right? Okay. And you're reading the story and you're thinking, why does Zechariah respond? Why does Gabriel respond so differently? To Mary, he blesses her. He says, you will be blessed. And the spirit is poured out and she's worshiping and praising God and celebrating. And to Zechariah, he goes, dude, take a time out. Okay, take a time. What is, is, was Gabriel grumpy that day? Like, what is the difference? In in our English translation, the, the, the difference between their questions is veiled. And it's the difference that is the key to understanding the condition of the human heart. When Mary says, how will this be? The question is a question that begins with faith. She says, I believe this is going to happen. 
would you just tell me a little bit about how it's going to happen? But Zachariah's question is different. He doesn't, he says, on what basis? He essentially says, show me a sign or I will not believe. That's why Gabriel says, you didn't believe. And so now you're going to be quiet, right? It's possible for even the most pious and faithful and religious people to find themselves in a place where they're afflicted with a lack of faith. It can happen to any of us. See, we read the story and we think, I would, I would have responded differently than Zechariah, but would we? Even people who are actively serving God can discover that they've wandered into a place where they no longer live with a deep, intrinsic trust that God is good and he answers prayer. The reader's expecting Zechariah to erupt with joy. I've been praying, God, you answered my prayers. But he, he does the opposite. He digs in his heels with skepticism. Amazing. And you say, why? Luke doesn't tell us. I mean, there's probably a lot of different possibilities. Maybe Zechariah had gotten his hopes up so many times. He and his wife had prayed. And maybe they even thought they were pregnant. And their hopes were lifted. And then, and then, no. And they experienced the heartache of living in a broken world. Can you imagine? And some of you can. Getting your hopes up time and time again only to have those hopes dashed. It can do a number on your heart, right? Perhaps, perhaps Zechariah had, had gotten to a place where he had prayed so many times and the prayer had never been answered that he found himself praying but not really believing that God would actually answer that prayer. That can happen. To me, it can happen to you, living in a broken world where things don't work. I remember this week a story in the book of Acts where something like this happened. It's in chapter 12. Don't turn there because I'm going to put the story on the screen. But in this particular moment in the life of the early church, uh, Herod was tired of the Christians preaching, so he murdered James, the brother of John, and he put Peter in prison, and the whole church gathered for a prayer vigil, praying, God, please release Peter. Please release Peter. They're together praying, probably in a setting just like this. The whole church united around one prayer. And in the story, something miraculous happens. An angel comes. It was probably Gabriel. Chains fall off. Peter walks out of prison and he, he decides I should probably go to the church and let him know that things are good you know so he does he shows up and here's what happened just look on the screen when Peter realized this he went to the house of Mary the mother of John whose name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying and when he knocked at the door of the gateway a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer recognizing Peter's voice in her joy she did not even open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. Now think about the irony. The church is praying, God, release Peter. Release Peter. Lord, we trust you. Peter's here. You're out of your mind. God, release Peter. And we laugh. But the reality is the world will 
pound you sometimes into a place where you find that you're praying exactly like that. Right? This is why Gabriel does not come down on Peter in a, he doesn't punish Peter. I think what Gabriel does, or uh, Zachariah, what he does in this moment is he just graciously disciplines him. And he says, you're going to get a little season where you can't talk. You know what I think that was what Gabriel did? I think that because Zachariah could no longer spot, talk, he had to use his other senses to see what God was doing. Like, I need to actually open my eyes and see how God is at work in my life and in my world. It's actually an act of grace, right? And so Zechariah goes home. Let's finish the story. Here's what happened. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Uh, first, uh, the people were outside waiting. They were wondering at his delay, verse 22. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. It was the first game of charades in the history of the church. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked to me, looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Amazing. Elizabeth gets pregnant. She hides herself away for five months. Luke doesn't tell us why. But I think what's happening in that is that she's not ashamed. She's not embarrassed. She wants to focus in on thanking God for what he's done. It's so cool. So beautiful. But Luke is a master storyteller. And do you want to know who the first person that Elizabeth spoke to after five months of seclusion? Who was it? It was Mary, the mother of Christ who when she visited Elizabeth was pregnant and the spirit filled baby in her womb spoke through a kick of her belly. The first prophetic word, this child in your cousin's womb is significant. And Mary praised God for sending the Messiah into the world. Masterful storytelling. Amen. Isn't that great? Now I'm going to give you three truths today for your life. I'm going to do this rapid fire. I want you to write these down and take them with you. You say, Pastor, how does this apply to me? Well, here's three observations. Number one, one of the biggest threats to a trusting relationship with God is a deep, personal disappointment. And Luke is saying through his story, Christian, you need to be on your guard. Because in your life, if you start experiencing deep personal disappointment, that could become a serious threat to a humble, trusting, loving relationship with Heavenly Father. Right? Now it's amazing. Luke is not 
minimizing the pain of living in a broken world. The pain is real. The way he tells the story, pain is real. If you are here today with pain, no one's minimizing your pain. What Luke is saying is he's saying, just be careful. That pain could pound on you enough that you begin to give up that deep faith in God. And Luke would say, you, you need to make sure that you don't lose perspective. Don't make an exchange where you exchange what's happening right now in your life for something much bigger, much longer, much deeper, more lasting. The most powerful illustration I ever heard of this was from a pastor named Francis Chan. And he was preaching and he said, imagine there's a string tied to my binder. And that little piece of string goes across the podium, down over the edge, out the sanctuary, down this abnormally long sidewalk that we have here at our church, goes down the sidewalk, out the parking lot, and it goes all the way to the Oregon coast. And then he said, the distance from my binder to the edge of the podium is your life on this earth. And the rest of the string represents eternity with the Heavenly Father. Make sure that you don't lose that perspective. Make sure that you never exchange this temporary moment, even if it's filled with incredible joy. Make sure, or if it's filled with sorrow, do not be deceived by making an exchange for this, for that. Because when it gets to the Oregon coast, it actually just stretches out into eternity and you can't even see the end of it. Luke says, just be on your guard. Number two, truth number two. Christians are people who have learned to look for God's intervening work in our world. That's who we are. We've learned this. We're learning this. This is the point of the story. We've learned to expect it. Christians are people who are expectant. They live their lives with their spiritual eyes open, not because they're hyper-spiritualizing things, but because they deeply believe in the character of God, that he's gracious and sovereign, that he loves our world, that he's constantly in his grace intervening. He's breaking in and Christians are people who live with the expectation that's happening right now. In my prayers, I want to pray with greater expectancy, God. In my relationships, I want to live believing you're at work. I had a mentor when I was in high school. He was my youth pastor. He, he showed me this. His name was Eric. I've, I've never met anyone who believed that in every interaction he had with anyone that God wanted to use him. And he would walk into that interaction with a sense of expectation, looking, God, maybe it's a word of kindness. Maybe you want me to pray for this person. Show me what you're trying to do here, Lord. He lived like that. It was so profound. How about you? Christians, we're learning that. We're learning that. Like Zechariah, we're learning like Elizabeth. And here's number three. Luke's account of the story of the gospel is not just about information. It's about an invitation. It's an invitation. Luke 
as he tells his story, he's constantly inviting people to join. Every character in Luke's gospel is given an opportunity to respond to what they're hearing about Jesus. Some of them respond with joy and they immediately begin to participate like Elizabeth who praised God for five months. Some of them are a little bit more reluctant like Zachariah who guards his heart with skepticism. And some of them outright reject Christ and dig in their heels and their hearts go cold and stubborn. And all along the way, as Luke tells the story, with every character that's introduced, the reader is realizing I'm being invited in this moment to ask the question, am I joining God in his mission in our world through his son, Jesus Christ? Even today, it's happening. Right in this moment, as the gospel of Luke is read and the story is told, the invitation is going out. It's already gone out to your heart. You're not here by accident. You're being invited by a merciful God who's saying, will you join me? Join me in this story. Did you come in today and you've been pounded by a world of disappointment and your faith has waned? God is just saying, I want to invite you back into a place of humble faith. I want to soften your heart. Did you come in today with a heart that's hardened towards Christ? Refuse. I will never surrender to Jesus. God in his mercy is inviting you. Let go of that. It's making you miserable. Let go and, and acknowledge Jesus is Lord and Savior. I want to follow him. The invitation goes out. How I pray, River West, that you would respond today with a wholehearted, yes, God, I want to join you. I'm going to pray about that right now. Will you bow your heads with me as we get ready to take communion? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant, Luke. who was so meticulous, so careful. But ultimately, Luke was filled with your spirit as he wrote. And so we thank you, spirit of the living God, for this divinely inspired account of the life of Jesus. And the great privilege we have as a church to enter into the story. We want to pray together that as we encounter the life of Jesus, that our church would change, that, our, that we as individuals would change, that we would be renewed and revived, and that in your mercy, our community would be revived, God, as we invite and ask others to join us on this journey. And so thank you, Lord. I want to pray for those who have come today who entered this place with deep disappointment and pain, Father, would you meet them, love them, care for them, restore them. I want to pray for those who came today holding Jesus at arm's length. And they know, even in this moment, that that hardened shell around their heart is crumbling. If that is happening to you, don't be afraid. 
Don't fear, God loves you. Lean in, say a prayer this morning. Cry out, call upon the name of Jesus in your heart. Acknowledge and say, God, I believe that Jesus is your son, that he he died for my sins, he rose again. That through his sacrifice, my sins are forgiven and I have life in his name. Put your hope in Christ alone. And if you do that, you're becoming a Christian. Hallelujah. Praise God. And so we love you, Lord. And it's with great joy now that we go to the table together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.